Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Well, hello, Redemption Hill. It is great to see you today, to be with you today. Um, I'm so grateful for the continued rhythm of being together as a church, even from scattered places. Um, the opportunities we have for some to be starting to join us for the service recordings, and we're going to continue to monitor things. Um, and in fact, um, by the time Sunday comes, you will have hopefully seen an, some announcements on how we're approaching things and the, the latest update for our church as we look into the month of August and towards September. Um, a couple of announcements for you that I wanted to make sure to highlight, though, are um, two. One is um, you have almost certainly heard about the explosion in Beirut, Lebanon, um, there was an Acts 29 church that is located just blocks away from where the warehouse exploded, and the church has been the church building has been devastated. The pastor and his family were out of town, and um, but he is back in town. And Acts 29 Network has created a relief fund, and so if you would like to give toward City Church in Beirut, um, you can find on all Redemption Hill social media posts on how to get there and be able to give toward the rebuilding effort. As that church now serves their city in the wake of this disaster. Um, another announcement for you is that next Sunday, August 16th, we are going to have a church-wide call to fasting and prayer. And so throughout the day, we will send out a guide for you to, and invite you to join us. If you're a member, call you to join us. And throughout the day, it will, um, we will give some guidance in blocks. So like in, it, sometime in these two hours, spend some time praying toward this topic so that we're all praying toward the same things together. We'll fast through the service. So next Sunday, we won't celebrate the Lord's Supper as part of our worship service in the morning. But instead, we're going to have a massive Zoom call that evening. And I know we've, we're all Zoomed out, but the reason we're doing this is so that we can break our fast together with the Lord's Supper and then go into a time of, of having dinner. And that could be with people that you live with or your family or with your community group, if your community group is comfortable being together, so that we can break the fast with the Lord's Supper together from scattered places and then have a meal together to celebrate God's faithfulness. And so there'll be more details coming out soon, but watch for that. That's Sunday, August 16th, a church-wide call to fasting and prayer together. Now with that, let's pray and we're going to jump right in. We have a lot of ground to cover in Romans chapter 9 today. Father, we realize now as much or more than ever how small we are, as Pastor Chewy just led us to pray as well, how out of control we are, how all the plans that we make have to, all of a sudden we are couching them in, you know, we'll see, but I'm hoping that this is what's going to happen, and finally following what James tells us and saying, you know, why do you say that you're going to go to this place or do this thing when you should say if the Lord wills it, and we feel that right now, and so as we come to you, we need a source of security and a source of hope, and I'm grateful that your word provides a foundation and a rock that we can cling to and stand on that is unshakable and unmovable. And so would you help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are soft to receive today. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know how you're feeling this week. I feel like I need some hope. It doesn't, it's hard looking around right now. It feels like I say that most weeks this year, and it feels that way most weeks this year. Today's text provides a foundation of hope for us. We are in Romans chapter 9 today. I'm not going to waste a lot of time in getting to it, but I think it's important for us because it provides us hope and security in the sovereignty of God. Now, last week we started Romans chapter 9. This chapter puts on display the theological concept of God's sovereignty, that he is sovereign in salvation. And so in our study of Romans so far, we've seen the focus of the first eight chapters has been on our justification, our standing before God, that, that we are justified, we have right standing before God by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. That is our only hope for salvation, our only hope standing in front of God in judgment. And then we saw in chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so chapter 9 then turns to the question of 
God's sovereignty, and it, it has an eye on human responsibility, as we saw last week, and so the Bible doesn't hold those two things at odds like we often do as we debate with each other. It doesn't say, you know, is God sovereign or is our humans, do humans have freedom of will? It says, no, both of these things are true, but chapter 10 really gets to our will and our responsibility in our own salvation, and so we'll, we'll get there in chapter 10. But in chapter 9, it's, it's showing God's sovereignty, and that's the focus of this chapter. So last week, we saw that we can trust God's word, that we can rest in God's sovereignty, that it's a soft pillow for our heads, not a hammer for debates that we can understand our own responsibility, <laughs> but in it all, we can cling to Jesus. And so this week raises important questions for us. If God is sovereign, then how can we know that he's fair? How can we know that he's just in the application of his sovereignty? How can we trust God is really at the core here. How is he trustworthy? Because we can, from our perspective sometimes, it doesn't feel that way. But we'll see today that there's hope for us. That in Christ, we will never be put to shame. So today we're going to cover chapter 9, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. And this is what it says. So before we get to it, in chapter 9... And Paul said, I have anguish in my heart for my kinsmen, the Israelites. So he's saying, he's answering the question, why did so many Israelites, why did so many Jewish people reject the Messiah? And he says they had the, the law and the covenants and the worship and the promises and the patriarchs. And, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ. But it's not like God's word has failed. And he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it ends with the statement that we took time to look at last week, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so just like when we hear that statement, it makes us recoil a little bit. Paul raises the objection, and he raises three questions for us today, and that's what we see in our text, beginning in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed it sa he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in this very same place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has, had not led, left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was a long section with a lot of Hebrew Bible, a lot of Old Testament packed into it. 
But at its core, there are three questions about God's sovereignty that Paul raises for us. That's what we're going to walk through today. Um, These three questions will shape things for us. So the three questions are, is God unjust? Well, if he's not unjust, then then why does he hold us responsible if he's sovereign? Because for who can resist his will? And then he raises the question, is God unfair in his offer of salvation? So those are the three questions that we'll walk our way through today. Um, and so within this, it's a long section, but I think you can see it breaks down pretty, pretty neatly for us. That doesn't mean this, it breaks down easily, but it is clear. And so the first question, is God unjust? The word here in the Greek that, is, that Paul uses is adikia. The word for righteousness that's been all over the beginning of Romans is dikaiosune. It's the same root word. And so this is asking, is God unjust? Is he anti-righteous in his dealings with us in our salvation? Because when you hear the statement, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, that's one of the questions that comes up in our minds. Is that fair? I mean, every one of us has this question. We've had this question since we were kids, right? Like, if you have siblings, you spent your entire childhood trying to figure out if what was given to you was fair. And you wanted to make sure that it evened out. Like, for us, we have three kids, which makes things really hard because... And there'll be times where, like, if there's two popsicles left in a box, like, we'll just make sure... We'll either throw them away or eat the popsicles because we don't want to have to deal with the questions later of is this fair and who gets the two popsicles and which kid that gets left out. Like, we'd rather just get rid of them. Thankfully, God is kinder than that. But we have this question, is life fair? Am I getting a fair shake? Is this just? Is God giving me a just process? And so Moses, I mean, Paul raises that question and then points back to Exodus. And and so already he's looked at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now he goes, continues his walk through the canon, goes to, to Egypt and says, remember what God said to Moses. God said to Moses, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he goes on to say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And this is a hard thing for us to read as well. That, that where it says, the, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That doesn't feel just. That doesn't feel fair. So Paul gives an example that we still go, I don't like that. But let's remember what happened in Exodus. Some of you at Redemption Hill were here when we walked through Exodus. I think that was just last fall, about a year ago, that we walked through the the book of Exodus and saw this when Pharaoh's heart was hardened with what we call the ten plagues or the ten signs that were given to the the Egyptians when, when Pharaoh would not let people go. And so Moses kept saying and pleading with him, hey, let my, let my people go. God says, let my people go, and then all of this will be over. And Pharaoh would again and again and again say no. Now, there's some who have said that, you know, this has to do with Egyptian nuance and the mummification process and a heart removed and a stone scarab replaces it. I don't think that's all that helpful here. But, but what we do see is we can ask the question, looking back at Exodus, who was responsible for what happened? with the Israelites. Who's held responsible there? And Moses was frustrated with Pharaoh all the way through in the account over and over again as he came to Pharaoh and and he realized, especially before the 10th sign and the death of the firstborn, he realized the death and mayhem that was about to follow, and, it was, and he was angry. Moses was angry that Pharaoh would not listen, that he was stubborn and wouldn't listen in spite of the plagues. Even the Egyptian magicians in chapter 8 and in chapter 10 plead with Pharaoh, just let them go. You, we are outmatched by their God, and they're pleading with Pharaoh to let them go. So even the Egyptians saw this. And we have a hard time with this idea that God hardened Pharaoh's heart But a couple of thoughts here to remember about Pharaoh. Pharaoh, first, was a wicked and oppressive ruler. God was confronting the abuse of power in a man in order to liberate a people from bondage. And Pharaoh had set himself apart as a god to be worshipped as the god over the Egyptian pantheon of gods. And so he was being confronted directly by God as such. So we need to keep that in mind. Pharaoh was not just your average Egyptian. He was a man who claimed to be God and was oppressing people in slavery. That is who God confronted. Second, 
there is still human responsibility even in the midst of divine sovereignty here. And this gets to the mystery we began to touch on last week, that throughout Scripture, we are always held responsible for our actions. We are always held responsible for the things we do and the things and, and how we live our lives. And God is sovereign. And we see this all in Exodus chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, beginning of chapter 10, as it describes after the seventh plague and before the eighth plague. And listen to how it describes it in Exodus. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So who, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? In Exodus chapters 9 and 10. Well, it's described three different ways. It says that when the plague stopped, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He said that, it, the plague, the, the, that it, when it ceased, that he sinned again and hardened his own heart. Then it states it objectively. And so Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then when God is talking to Moses, he's saying, listen, I have hardened his heart so that my glory will be shown so that you will know who I am and that my name will be proclaimed among them. And he uses covenant name. They will know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. And so there is a human responsibility that Pharaoh is choosing to reject God's mercy in ending the plague and choosing to continue to be confronted And God is saying, I have made it so that he will continue in his own stubbornness. And there's a haunting question in in, in verse 3. As it goes on in, in Exodus 10, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? This is the question that confronts some of us. If we shake our fist at God and say, why did you harden my heart? And God's question to us is, why are you refusing to humble yourself before me and still standing against me? This language of a hard heart appears all the way through Scripture from this point forward. It's not something that's unfamiliar in the text and just pops up again in Romans chapter 9. So it shows up when Israel, the Israelites come into the promised land that they hardened their hearts against God and turned away from their covenant with the one true God to embrace idols, empty idols of the people of the promised land. In Psalm 115, there's a description, a, a horrifying description say, of what, it, what the results of wrong worship are, that when people worship idols, they become like them. That though having eyes, they won't see. Though having mouths, they can't speak. Though having hands, they can't feel. And feet, they cannot walk. The ears, they cannot hear. And so it's saying that we become calloused and hardened to the voice of God by having our worship misdirected. It comes up in the prophet Isaiah, that Isaiah is called by God. There's a vision in the temple that, that of God where there's angels flying around, and Isaiah, confronted by God's presence, throws himself down and says, woe to me, I'm ruined. God heals him and cleanses him, and then and Isaiah volunteers, and he says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, send me, and God's commission to Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah is, go and tell this people, though hearing you will not perceive because their hearts have become dull. And God is saying his people had turned away from them and his judgment was turning them over to the things they would pursue. Jeremiah's promise was that a new covenant would come and replace the hearts of stone within us with hearts of flesh. Jesus teaches about Isaiah's call and says, this is why I teach in parables. And we saw this in Romans chapter 1, that people worship the creator, or the created things rather than the creator to our own destruction. 
You see, the, the reality is every one of us has the full ability and responsibility if we harden our own hearts. And how do we do that? Well, we do it in a few ways. We can harden our own hearts by pursuing, knowingly pursuing what we, what we know to be sin. By, by, we become calloused and have a seared conscience. It gets easier and easier and easier when, when we know something is wrong the more times we do it. And this is the problem with, with extra-biblical demands is that when we, when we put up commands that aren't in Scripture and we violate them and see that it's not actually sin, then we'll continue to roll along until we go off the edge of the cliff. We harden our own hearts by ignoring or, or neglecting our hearts. And too often, we have a perspective in our lives that we, we can't deal with emotion. This is particularly a hard issue and dangerous issue for men. You're conditioned to figure things out and get them done. And don't, you don't, nobody, nobody looks at a guy who's in touch with his emotions and says, that's, you know, that's a guy that we're going to follow. It's, it's something that's bred into us to think that way. And so we increasingly cut our hearts out and get numb to our emotions. But you have to be careful because you can't become selectively numb. And so if you try to numb yourself only to the hard things in life and suppress those emotions, you'll find that you're unable to enjoy the good things of life too. And there's a reality that at times God will harden our hearts. That's what it says in the text. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He'll turn us over to the desires of our hearts and give us everything we want. That's what it means to be in God's judgment. And it will lead to our own destruction. And so how often have you been frustrated with God for not saying yes to the things you want? Where you see something in your life and like, I just want that. I want that relationship or that job or that opportunity or that house or that. that and, and you get frustrated because you pray and you plead with God and it just feels like he's saying he's either silent or he's saying no to things that you think are good and that you want. And so often we don't realize that he's saying no for our own protection. To cultivate greater dependence on him, which is for our ultimate good. And if he turns us over and gives us everything we want, that may be a sign of his judgment. In all of this, God's word, as some have said, is, is like the sun, because the same sun that melts wax also hardens clay. And so this is what we see in Romans chapter 9. We see that, it, but, and he said to Moses, that I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will com have compassion on whom I have compassion. Even this is an important, powerful moment in Exodus later on where the Israelites, as soon as they got out of Egypt, they were frustrated because Moses took too long on Mount Sinai. And so do you remember what they did while Moses was gone? They decided to make a golden calf. And Aaron helped them fashion it. And then it's... And, and then he, Aaron, it, the, who was supposed to be the, the man to lead the people to God as, as the first priest and, you know, mo working alongside Moses. And Aaron said, here, O people, is your God who brought you out of Egypt and showed them the golden calf. And when Moses got down from the mountain, he, he was coming down and he saw what was going on and he broke the stone tablets and, and confronted Aaron. And Aaron, it's one of the most, to me, the most sadly comical points in scripture because Aaron's response, Aaron, Moses says, what is going on? What did you do? And Aaron goes, I don't know. We put gold in the fire and out came this calf. Like, I don't know what happened. As if it was an accident. But the people couldn't even get far from Egypt, and they had already turned to idolatry. And, and so God was threatening to walk away from them, to leave them. And Moses was interceding and pleading with God on top of Mount Sinai, and pleading with God to have mercy, saying, you can't leave us. We can't go from this place without your presence. And then he made a bold request to God and said, show me your glory, Lord. And God said, Moses, nobody can see my face and live but I'm going to put you in a place in the rock, and when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock, and you, you'll see my goodness. And as God's presence passed by, he cried out his name because God knows that what Moses needed to see was not his glory. He saw his glory in the pillar of cloud and fire. What Moses needed, and God knows that faith comes from hearing. And so he proclaimed truth to Moses, and he proclaimed his name and his character. And it says in Exodus 34 that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and said, if, I, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses, when confronted with the name and character of God, bowed himself down and confessed his sin and begged for mercy. And God has promised to have mercy on those whom he will have mercy. You see, God is just. That's the question that, that is raised for us. Is God unjust in his sovereignty? No, he is just, but we get this wrong because what we don't remember is that we deserve nothing from him. We are a stiff-necked people who abandon our commitments and, and give up on our promises with fickle hearts, and yet God is merciful and patient with us. And so is God unjust in saving some of us? No. We are all responsible for our actions and deserving of his wrath, yet he chooses to soften some of our hearts. Thank God for that. All right, that was question one. Question two. Why does God hold us responsible then? If he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he has mercy on him, he has mercy, and he loved, he loved Jacob. Why does he hold us responsible? And this is what it really gets down to, right? When, we, when, when related to God's sovereignty, we ask, well, is this a just decision? Can we, what we're asking is, like, is this fair for me? Like, how, how can he still hold me responsible if this is the case? And if, if that's the question that you come into this passage most with, you may leave terribly unsatisfied with Paul's answer for you. Because his answer is, who are you to ask? But let's try to understand why he says that and what he's getting to. Where does this come from? He says, you're just clay. Who are you to ask the potter how he fashions you? Now, throughout this, again, there's a progression in Romans 9 with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob into Moses and Pharaoh, now to the prophets. Is, and there are allusions and quotes in this one chapter of Romans from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Chronicles, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Malachi. We don't have time today to dig into how each one of those Old Testament books informs what is written in, in Romans chapter 9. But please understand, Paul was writing this section of the letter, particularly in an ethnically divided church, to the Jewish people who were raised and steeped in Hebrew scriptures. And what he's doing is showing that everything does indeed point to Christ. And God's sovereignty and, his, and God's working by, that it's by grace through faith is not new in Christ, but this is consistent with everything that has come up to this point in Scripture. And so he is pulling from all these places to show the consistency of God's work. And there are direct quotes here from Hosea 1 and 2 and from Isaiah all over. And, and so within this, if you have time and you want to go explore it, in particular, there's a section in Isaiah chapters 41 and 42 that talks about God crushing idolatrous people like clay because the idols of the Israelites were often, the household idols were made out of clay. They were carved in clay. Um, you can still see them today. It's one of the shocking things. When I was, um, last fall, I got to, I had the privilege to go and spend some time in Jerusalem and it, at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, you can, I was walking around and all of a sudden I saw this big display case with all of these figurines. And I started reading the placard and I couldn't believe it. I mean, I could when you read scripture, but it was so affirming of so much of what we read. These were household idols. These were what people had made for themselves to represent the local deities. And they kept them in their homes and hid them there and they turned away from worship of the one true God to these other smaller gods. And so that's the context in Isaiah 41 and 42 when God says that he's going to crush people, the idolaters, those who worship those gods, as the clay is of the gods they worship. And so even here, I think that informs what we read when he says, so why does God still find fault in us? He says, we're just clay. 
Doesn't God, as the potter, have the right to take the same lump of clay and make some vessels for noble use and some vessels for other uses? And and doesn't he have the right to decide? And, And I think when we hear these things, though, when we come into this discussion, we come from the angle and perspective of asking um, of, of fixating on those who have rejected God and saying, saying, how could God harden them? How can he let them have hard hearts? No matter where you land on that, we, we want to know that. And what we miss, again, is that we are all worthy of God's wrath. We are made of dust. And we're going to return to dust And every one of us on our own is guilty of our own idolatry of worshiping and having our affections and hearts run after something other than our creator. This is why Romans 1 and 2, the beginning of the letter, is so important because Paul shows this, that this happens for the irreligious, that we worship created things rather than the creator, and it happens for the religious, that we worship ourselves and stand in our own righteousness and decide that our actions are good enough to deserve God's favor and love. So no one's exempt. And then now, though, when we get to Romans chapter 9, we read, what, God, what if God, so Paul says, what, what if? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he is called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And so Paul's answer is, we all deserve to be crushed now. But what if the answer here is that God's being patient with us? And that in that, some will continue to be destined for wrath, but that some will embrace his mercy. And what we're seeing is God's patience here. And so Paul is saying there's more at work here. And this is not just to Jewish people anymore. He's saying that the doors have been opened for all people. It's the, it's the promise made to Abraham that people from every family on the face of the earth can be blessed and brought into the blessings of the family of God. The doors have been opened, Paul is saying. And so, so why are we looking at God and saying, why are you being so patient and allowing some vessels for wrath to continue to be raised up when he's showing his mercy to so many? And he's, ultimately, I think what Paul is, saying, is showing here is a level of humility and saying, this is beyond my understanding and our understanding. We aren't qualified to decide who is destined for wrath and who is destined for mercy. And thank God for that. You know, there are certain jobs that I know that I'm not qualified for. Do you, do you, are, you, are you self-aware enough to realize there's things that you're not qualified to do? Um, I had my, my left ankle rebuilt this January, and you know, praise God, it's, it's doing fairly well. I'm still working through some stiffness, but it, overall, for the things they did, it's remarkable how the human body heals and what, how, what modern medicine can do. My experience in having that surgery does not itself qualify me to be an orthopedic surgeon, right? I haven't studied orthopedic surgery. I mean, I've studied what they did to my ankle, and I could describe it, but you know, it's, you know, we don't need to go there today. Like, it, it was fascinating, but I don't, if you were to put me in an operating room and put me in, I could look like an orthopedic surgeon. I'm sure that they could get me scrubbed up and I could put on the garb and I could walk in, but once you had somebody under anesthesia on the table and it was time to make a cut, I would have no idea what to do. Like, I would, you don't want somebody shooting from the hip on that, right? Like, hey, I had this done to me. I, I'm pretty sure I know how this goes. If I said to you, hey, your ankle hurts, why don't you come over to my place tonight at five and we'll, we'll work on it. We'll, we'll just make sure that you're, you're asleep and, and I'm going to make this fixed. You'd say no if you're sensible. You're not qualified for that. And it, it's dangerous to think that I am. And so I think we need to understand that, that, that we do have a calling to understand who God is as he has revealed himself to be. But let's not overestimate ourselves. It is, not, it is not our place to stand as evaluators of God's mercy, as if we dictate what is ultimately just in the cosmos with our very limited perspective. But we can embrace the calling to be eager recipients of that mercy. 
And if you're afraid of God hardening people's hearts, and what if he hardens my heart, and what if I don't turn to him, and what if I'm not one of the ones who receives his mercy, praise God you're asking the question. That to me is evidence that God has softened your heart enough to show you humble enough to be able to ask whether or not you're his. And then there's an answer that whoever believes in Christ will never be put to shame. And so you can stand with confidence as a recipient of mercy without being an evaluator of God's justice. None of us deserves his mercy. And so at points, we need to let him give us something good and receive it joyfully and willingly. And there's another point that we need to see here, too, that I want to make, um, particularly for those who are here or tuning in um, who aren't Christians. And some of you might be exploring or wondering what Christianity is all about. This is a tough text to step into, but it's an important one that talks about the character of God with clarity, even if it's tough for us to wrap our minds around. It's not unclear in the text. But I do want to make one point here, that if you're antagonistic to Christianity— if you find yourself more in a position like Pharaoh, opposed to God, you think his people are, are stupid, you might associate Christianity with all kinds of things, an ethic or politics or things that it may or may not be. But, but I want you to hear this. No matter who you are, no matter what you do with your life, no matter how adamantly opposed to God you might be, and no matter how much you might work to do harm to those who call on Christ as their Savior, there is something here that shows us that no matter which vessel you are, whether you're Moses interceding on behalf of God's people or whether you're Pharaoh standing opposed to him, you cannot help but glorify God with your life in the end. He will receive glory. He will receive praise. In the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the, his glory. And even Pharaoh, who set himself up as a God, opposed to the one true God, brought glory to God in the end. But we don't need to be stuck opposed to him. There's a free offer of salvation in Christ, which gets to our third question for the day. Is God unfair in his offer of salvation? So the question of God's sovereignty is, he, is God just? Why does he hold us responsible? And is God unfair in his offer? As, that's, as the chapter closes, Paul says, what shall we say then? So up until this point, he's already built. Like, look at how God handled his people. Sorry to back up a little bit, and then we'll build into it. So in Hosea, this quote of Hosea, like, do you see God's mercy to his people that he said to them, the very, you're not going to be my people anymore. You've turned away from me. You're under my judgment. But then in verse 26, at the very same place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there was a promise that there they will be called the sons of the living God. So even in God's judgment, he showed mercy on his people. God showed his judgment and said that they were going to be wiped out by Assyria and Babylon. But then there was Isaiah predicted, the Lord of hosts has not left us without offspring. There was still a remnant. There was hope that remained because of God's kindness and mercy. And so he says, so what should we say? He says, this doesn't look fair, does it? Like, can you imagine to the Jewish people in the church at Rome that, and, and in the first century that, that were watching Christianity explode on the scene as Jesus said, I am the one you've been waiting for. For hundreds of years, every promise about the Messiah has come to its fullness in me. And it didn't look like the people expected, but it was the fullness of what was predicted, particularly in passages like Isaiah 53 that looked ahead to the one who would suffer in our place for our sin. Christ conquered not Rome, but sin and death and the devil and will, ret and will return to establish his kingdom. And so, and so he is the Messiah that was looked for, but there was this divide in the church that makes sense to me. Because you have people that their entire lives were trying to get it right to follow God's law, and now they were told any of the Gentiles who haven't been doing this their whole life are allowed to get in on the same promise. And so he's addressing the question with the Jewish, the Jewish Christians in Rome, like, this doesn't look fair, does it? Again, back to like, all of us know this as kids, we still feel this now, like, you've experienced this, right? Like in the, at work, there are times when you work hard, you do everything right, you do everything on time, you, you lead the way on initiatives. You do, like this is why group projects stunk in school. Like I can remember that in college, I always hated a group project because two people out of the six would do the work and the other four would just be like, oh, 
great, it's presentation day, what am I supposed to say? And they still get the same grade. In the workplace, you can work hard and do everything right, and you watch some coworker that just slacks off and shows up late, and they get a promotion. And you're like, what? that's not how this goes. And we have a sense of fairness and when things are wrong. And so I think here, Jesus taught this in a parable about, about a vineyard owner that, would, that people came throughout the day and, and joined the work throughout the day. And so some were there early in the morning and worked all day long. Some came at the very last hour and only worked an hour of work. And at the end of the day, they all got the same wages. And, and, the, and the workers were like, what, what, what is this about? This isn't fair. And the owner said, isn't it? my decision on how to give the wages. So this is all being prepped to show us there was this question of fairness, and he's saying, the Gentiles didn't pursue the law, and they are given righteousness just by faith? But Israel pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, to God's law for us, and they didn't succeed? Why? Well, because they didn't pursue it by faith, but it was based on works. I was saying this is consistent with all of Scripture, that our works can never measure up. We all fall short of God's glory. Every one of us. That, that we, we can't, that, I mean, in Isaiah 58, God talks about, it. listen, I don't, I don't need your feasts and sacrifices. The feasts I want are that you actually are just and pursue justice for the poor. You don't, he, Jesus says this to the leaders and teachers of Israel, like, hey, you, you've upheld all kinds of commandments, like you tithe everything, you tithe even your herbs, but you've missed God's calling and heartbeat for justice. They, people were so concerned about, even in Jesus' time where he called them out, you know, you swear on not just the temple, but the gold on the temple, and he, Jesus is like, just let your yes be yes and your yo be no and stop with all the oaths. And this is a problem for those of us, this is, again, for us now, this can be brought into context by saying, if you've grown up in the church, and you know the, some of you grew up in the church, and you know the rules, you know what you're supposed to say, and what you're supposed to not, not supposed to say, you know how you're supposed to respond, you know what a prayer request is supposed to sound like, and what it's not supposed to sound like, and so you've got all the lingo when people in, are in your community group, and you're like, yeah, I echo that request, and I have an unspoken, and it's like, people are like, What? You, like you, but you know, you know how, to, how to play the game and how to put on the face, and you know how to do the things you're supposed to do in order to look right. But do you rest in your own righteousness and your own ability to look the right way? Or in Christ's finished work for you that actually exposes that you need a savior? The Gentiles have been welcomed by faith. And the Jewish Christians were, were wondering, like, they just get to waltz in on God's blessing? The children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those led out of Egypt by Moses that, that had left God and cheated on God with idols and abandoned their covenant, and still God had mercy on them, and still God honored his promises to them despite Israel's sin. And what Paul calls on from, is, from Isaiah establishes here that God's preeminence and his power and his reign over all people. And, and saying God's righteousness and praiseworthiness and faithfulness to his promises. And so as we stand in the light of God's glory and goodness, when, if we stand in our own righteousness in the light of God's glory and goodness, we ought to be ashamed because God's light will expose the darkness within us. But, and we need the reminder, though, here that what we receive, that, that Christ has been laid down as a stumbling stone, that, that this is the dividing point that he is the dividing point, but that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so this passage in Romans 9 helps us because as we hear about God's sovereignty and ask, is God just? Is God, you know, is it, is it fair? Like, is it, why does he find fault in us and is he unfair in his offer of salvation? We need the reminder, every one of us, I need the reminder this week that I am not qualified for, to establish justice for the cosmos. I am not preeminent. I am not powerful. I do not reign over any person or stand in judgment over them. I am not righteous or praiseworthy. I am not faithful but fickle. We are dust and to dust will re, we will return it and our glory will fade like the grass of the field. God owes us nothing but 
even where God threatened to abandon Israel, he promised they would be called sons of the living God. Even in the midst of the judgment through Assyria, a remnant was saved. His people could have been left wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet offspring came. And the great promise is that one would come by whom we would never be put to shame, by, by whom we would never have to fear God's judgment again, and by whom we would never have to fear abandonment, by whom we would, be, we would never be cut off, in whom we stand as righteous and holy and known and loved. What we read in Romans 8 is true, that there is therefore now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. And now we read, Behold, I've lay, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock and of offense, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. This is Christ. He is the great cornerstone of God's new household, a new temple. He is the one who gives the foundation and shape to everything, and he is the stumbling block for many. It is too offensive to believe in a man who was killed and raised from the dead as our only hope. And it was offensive at the time for the Jewish people to embrace that he was the Messiah. And the reality is, for many of us, it still is. The big question, the key question of Christianity and the validity of Christianity ultimately comes down to, what do you do with Jesus? And there's lots of good questions we may have. There are lots of important questions to think through. But the question today, my question, if you are a skeptic, if you, don't, if you aren't a Christian, my question is, if all of your questions were answered, if all of your objections were clarified, if, they were done, if all of your objections were answered to your satisfaction, would you then give your life fully to Christ, trusting that he is the only hope of, for the salvation of your soul? Are you willing to go, give up control of your life to him as the Lord and King of your life? The only hope you have being saved from God's wrath. Would you embrace that and seek to be conformed into his image and likeness and reflect his love and self-sacrifice and glory? See, I have lingering questions too. I don't understand everything in Scripture. There's points where I'm like Paul here saying, I don't know, I'm just clay. And I trust the potter. And I have moments of objection too. Every one of us gets stung when we're confronted openly with God's Word. But I plead with you, don't let those objections and questions become a smokescreen that hides the reality that you simply won't embrace Christ. There's no additional secret knowledge that unlocks it all. The call of Christ is to follow him and to turn in faith and repentance. I was hoping to have a little bit of time today to walk into Luke chapter 13. Um, if you have time, go and read Luke 13, the beginning, the first few verses of Luke 13. And Jesus talks about, he, there's a couple of events that have happened and Jesus raises them as questions of God's justice and saying, hey, you know, is, were these people more sinful? There were some people killed by Rome and their blood was mixed with pagan sacrifice. Were they more sinful? Like, why did God allow that to happen? And Jesus says, you know, he raises these. He wasn't asked these. And there was a tower in Siloam that fell on people and killed like 18 people. He says, what, what's with that? You know, how do we answer this? And, and Jesus' answer is, listen, the, that's a sign to you. Repent. He says, your time is short. Repent. He goes on to say, a, a, a tree is known by its fruit, but he describes a tree that isn't bearing any fruit and that the vine dresser tends to it and wants to take care of the tree and put manure on it and says, by this time next year, it should bear fruit. And here's, if you take some time there, here's what I want us to rest in today. We may never understand God's sovereignty in its fullness. We might never know why God lets some things happen and why he deals with some people the way he does. We may never have answers and likely never will have answers for why, why COVID? Why has this year been like it's been? Why an explosion? Why elections and governments? Why? why? And, and ultimately, we're not responsible to have a fullness and understanding of everything that happens. But what we can do is look at the world around us and realize it is devastatingly broken and deal with our own hearts first. To recognize the, that we have no hope in ourselves, and, but we can repent and turn in faith and put our faith and hope in Christ and we will be saved. We'll never be put to shame. That we'll receive God's mercy and be welcomed as his people and, and then be patient with the rest of it. If there's people in your life that you're longing for and pleading with God for, don't stop. 
we keep working in this world like that vine dresser that is committed to work on that tree saying, hey, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to put some fertilizer around it. I'm going to water it. I'm going to cultivate the soil and try to make it have good roots. And I'm hoping that by this time next year, it should have some fruit. That's the calling that God's people have in this world is to patiently continue to work out the good of Christ's kingdom and trust that God is sovereign and trust him with the results. Believing that this time next year, the work we're doing now just might bear fruit. Let's pray. Father, that's our hope. None of us can change anyone's heart. We can barely figure out our own. None of us can change the circumstances around us directly when we're talking about things that are on a global scale. Father, would you, by your Spirit, move in our hearts individually today to understand and see and find hope in your goodness and your sovereignty? Would you help us to to find rest today? Would you help us to trust that you are just, that you have mercy on those whom you have mercy, that even when we deserve judgment, there's, that there's life that remains? Would you help us to see that, that you're good? Would you help us to rest in your mercy for us as recipients of your grace? I pray for those who are with us and those who are joining us that, that aren't walking with Jesus now, that you would give a sense of hope and peace by your spirit, that you would turn hearts and breathe life, not to run away from questions, but to, to understand that, that we'll never understand the creator of all things when we are the finite creatures and to rest that what you've given us is true and good and that in Christ we will never be put to shame and it's in his name we pray amen